0: This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Squareface. Are you looking for reliable, straightforward, and online plastic surgery? Visit squareface.com today. According to all known laws of aviation, there is no way a bee should be able to fly. But there is a way that I can spend an entire podcast talking about the bee movie. Welcome to episode 91 of the Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's Hottest Podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. Today, we are talking about bees, everyone's favorite thing to be stung by. I mean, according to the Schmidt Sting Pain Index, which is a real thing, a honeybee is nothing compared to a tarantula hawk. I mean, what is that, a flying tarantula? I think bees don't sound so bad if something called a tarantula hawk exists and stings people. As long as I can remember, calls to save the bees have dominated headlines, social media, and the entire personality of that one girl who sat behind me in English. I mean, people are really passionate about bees. Just listen to TikToker Erica Thompson, who goes on quite extreme measures for bee conservation. If a colony needs a new queen bee, one thing I can do is to order a queen from a bee breeder and get the new queen delivered to me in the mail. The queen arrives in a little cage with her attendant bees and a bit of candy for food. Then, I introduce the queen to the colony to see if they will accept her. If they don't like her, they will kill her almost immediately. I mean, come on! When was the last time you were so passionate about something that you went this far? First, you'd have to identify a colony without a queen, get a queen bee delivered in the mail, which in of itself is a show of how many other people are invested in this, and then risk the queen bee getting killed, all in the name of saving the bees. There are very few conservation efforts in the world today that see individual action and passion on that level. You definitely don't see anybody shipping baby humpbacks in the mail. But these actions don't stem from nowhere. The United States has seen numerous waves of lost honeybee colonies in the last few decades, most recently between April 2020 and April 2021, where beekeepers in the United States lost 45.5% of their managed honeybee colonies, according to the Bee-Informed Partnership. Bees are facing numerous threats, from pesticides, infestations, climate change, and much more. And that's really concerning. In addition to being your best option when it comes to stinging insects, bees are incredibly important for agriculture, the economy, and the environment. So today, we'll discuss what threats bees face, why they matter, and how we can, as the hipsters say, save the bees. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash If you want to take two minutes to help out the sweaty penguin, you can either leave us a five-star rating and review, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the sweaty penguin. Doing either earns you a special shout-out at the end of the show, joining the Patreon gets you merch, bonus content, and a whole lot more. But first, it's time for a little background on bees. And who better to tell you about them than the star of the bee movie himself, Jerry Seinfeld. Thank you, thank you! Okay, people. What is the deal with bees? There's 4,000 species native to the United States, but all the beekeepers have honeybees, which were imported from Europe. I mean, can someone explain this to me? and don't get me started on the stinger. When a bee stings you, it dies, and yet they keep doing it? (laughs) Have they not learned their lesson? I think evolution might have missed one here. (laughs) A bee goes up to a person, it's got a funny look on its face, and the whole bee colony's standing around going, you can't sting, you can't sting. Now that my voice is gone, let's keep going. Whether native bees or honeybees, these insects play an important role in pollinating plants. Bees will visit plants in search of pollen as a source of protein and nutrients, and will sometimes end up with pollen from a plant's male part, or anther, rubbed or dropped onto them, that they then carry to a plant with the female part, or stigma, as in, I'll stigma pollen up in that flower where that pollen can get stuck and lead to fertilization. Pollination is extremely important for the economy as well as the environment. Some crops, like almonds, are exclusively pollinated by honeybees. In fact, almonds and honeybees are in such a committed relationship that California's almond industry alone requires the pollination services of approximately 1.4 million beehives annually, which is 60% of all U.S. beehives. And with this exclusive relationship leading California to supply 80% of the world's almonds worth $4.8 billion each year. And on top of this borderline obsessive relationship with almonds, bees also produce products that go directly to the market, such as honey, pollen, royal jelly, beeswax, and venom, with honey alone bringing in a little over $339 million in 2019. So if bees are seemingly rolling in all this money, then why did Barry B. Benson try to sue the human race? I guess they probably don't see much of the profit, in which case, I'm with Barry. Stigma to the man. Yeah, that was a reach. Anyway, outside of an extremely historic court case in a nearly documentary-quality movie about bees, honeybees and native bees alike face numerous problems. Probably the most familiar to a lot of listeners is insecticides. Insecticides impact honeybees in a few ways. Honeybees can come in direct contact with insecticides while foraging in fields. In this case, the bee would die immediately and not return to the hive, which sounds upsetting, but is ultimately better for the hive because if the bee returns, then it can bring back the insecticide and contaminate all the other bees. A worse scenario is the case where a bee comes in contact with an insecticide and transports it back to the colony through contaminated pollen, nectar, or just through the insecticide hitching a ride on its body. In this case, many of the bees in the colony can die, and the queen bee starts making long speeches about kitchen tables and finding new normal, and nobody wants that. And while this is an issue, it may not be quite the same issue it sometimes is made out to be. Many different factors go into whether or not honeybees will face losses due to insecticides, ranging from temperature to time of application, as well as just what type of insecticide it is. Not all insecticides are toxic to bees. And even for ones that are, It depends entirely on the growth stage of the plant, the way the pesticide is formulated, the activity of the bee, the distance between the bee colony and the field, temperature, and time of application. Neonicotinoids, for example, are an insecticide with a chemical makeup related to nicotine, and those have gotten a lot of buzz from activists. Get it? Buzz? Anyway. Even this famous insecticide can't be definitively identified as the cause of colony collapse disorder. It is a likely contributor, but sometimes that rhetoric gets a little out of hand. Just listen to this activist Neon nicotoid pesticides are a specific type of pesticide that is hurting bee colonies and leading to their decline. We need laws to stop this widespread use of this specific pesticide if we want to turn the tide. Okay. Yes, neonicotinoids are hurting bees, but they are one of a long list of problems that bees are facing, and they may not even be the primary one. We don't have some sort of ESPN power ranking for bee threats. So sure, stopping widespread use of the pesticide might help, but it won't get rid of climate change. It won't get rid of infestations. So it's hard to make a claim that such a ban would automatically turn the tide, since there are additional issues out there that pose significant concerns. That's why I started out with pesticides. It is an issue, certainly the most well-known issue, but let's not pretend there aren't other problems too. And that leads us to infestations. Face threats from many viruses, bacteria, and fungi, and especially as the colonies have become more vulnerable in the wake of other issues, these pests can more easily turn into severe infestations. For example, Varroa mites are a pretty well-known pest that may sound like some sort of space-themed pop icon from the 90s, but are actually parasites that feed on the blood of immature honeybees, and while feeding, spread viruses and leave the bee host immunosuppressed. Since bees are famous for not social distancing in the hive, that means these viruses can spread very easily and contribute to colony collapses. But perhaps the most underrated threat to bees is actually climate change. Climate change is a significant contributor to declines in not just bees, but pollinators in general. Global warming and changes in weather patterns have disrupted native ranges for pollinators, making ecosystems unsuitable for important processes such as hibernation, nest establishment, and reproduction. I mean, come on. Who wants to mate when it's over 100 degrees outside? And with our non native friends, the honeybees, warmer fall and winter months are extending the period when bees are foraging, changing the age structure of colonies, and leading to greater winter colony loss. Here's Jeremy Jelinek, a beekeeper in Michigan, describing what happened when an early spring followed by late frosts hit his apiary in 2012. Basically, with it being five weeks early up here, we were shipping bees earlier than what we should have been, earlier than what we've ever done. And so, and with that happening, we have, you know, and things freezing, we basically had extra expense in feeding bees, and a lot of bees died out. As soon as we got them up here, it froze, it just froze out, and they stayed inside for a long time. And so, basically, I'm going to say about two to three hundred hives we lost. With climate change impacting seasons, this beekeeper found himself losing bees and money when spring was five weeks earlier than usual, but then it was followed by a late frost. And remember, this was 10 years ago. In 2012, all we knew about climate change is recycling good and baby polar bear only knows doggy paddle. Given that climate change has worsened as much as it has since then, these sorts of losses could become more widespread and frequent with increasingly unpredictable season changes and weather patterns. Our bees and beekeepers don't just face challenges from the environment, they also face challenges from the economy. The honey market today is in quite a sticky situation. Get it? Sticky? I know, I know, two in one episode, but did you want all of the jokes to be related to the B-movie? It's B-movie or puns. Those are your two options. Anyway, the honey business is actually booming, but honey production, surprisingly, is dropping. How is that possible, you ask? Well, lots of the honey on the market isn't 100% honey. Much of it is diluted with other syrups by manufacturers, who clearly think they are some sort of natural sweetener drug kingpins. And unlike similar products like vanilla, where at least if you want to look at the label or even just the prices, you can tell what's real and what's not, honey versus diluted honey is not so clear. (laughs) ¶¶ Around 25 years ago, the US did develop a method to detect dilution, but then China found out that this method didn't detect rice. So they created massive amounts of honey with rice syrup and purposely undercut the market, forcing some US manufacturers out. This resulted in, as always, the most raw and sexy item in the wild world of international economic policy, tariffs. You'd think a tactic as edgy and steaming hot as tariffs would work perfectly, but instead, China continued to dilute honey with rice syrups, ship it to middleman countries, slap on a new label with incorrect information, and send it to the U.S. from there. Since the U.S. only put tariffs on China, China found it less costly to create this elaborate workaround than to actually deal with the tariff. Quite the effort to get Americans hooked on rice syrup. This eventually led to the largest food fraud case in U.S. history in 2008, when the U.S. launched an investigation against the company Alfred L. Wolf and found the firm's honey to be illegal. Maybe it's a little funny to think that the largest food fraud case in the U.S. history was about honey of all things, but this sort of thing does hurt domestic beekeepers. Not only are they being undercut, but this sort of case can erode people's trust in the honey market. And the economic challenges for American beekeepers don't stop there. Every year, the almond industry in California's Central Valley has most of the entire country's beehives loaded onto trucks and brought to almond farms to pollinate every January. This can hurt agricultural industries elsewhere in the country that need pollination and increase the risk of disease since bees all over the country now have this chance to fraternize. These almond farms are sort of like the Olympic Village for honeybees. Pollinating all-stars are making cross-country trips to all be in close, and I mean intimately close, proximity with other bees. And we can give out pamphlets and horrible twin beds to Olympic athletes, but it's much harder to encourage bees to stop spreading diseases amongst themselves. Additionally, because of course this would happen... California's Central Valley has seen a string of over 2,000 hive heists where beekeepers end up getting their bees stolen. Listen to beekeeper Claire Towser, who had her beehive stolen earlier this year, share her thoughts.
1: Beekeepers are the other ones, are the only people stealing bees from other beekeepers. Um, You have to have specialized equipment. Um, It's not something that's a random act. It's very calculated. It takes us over a year to build a healthy hive. And so when it's stolen from us, it's not something we can easily replace.
0: Step aside ski masks and black turtlenecks. It's hazmat suits and fancy wide-brimmed hats now. But being a beekeeper herself, Claire believes that stealing bees can't really be a one-off crime. It is something that has to be planned for, because bees are really complicated. In essence, it has to be another beekeeper committing the crime. This just goes to show how lucrative bees are and how tough beekeepers have it, if beekeepers themselves are willing to go to such extreme lengths to steal other bees. Claire was able to get a cash reward and recover her hive with the thieves being arrested, but that's not always the case. I mean, no wonder Barry B. Benson took legal action. And you might be thinking, why bother sending your bees to California if there's a threat of disease and theft? And that's exactly how many beekeepers feel, too. If the honey industry were actually a fair playing field, and beekeepers were reaping all the rewards of their hard work, then perhaps they wouldn't need the extra income from the almond industry. But right now, they need all the income they can get. So where do we go from here? How do we save the bees? On a more individual level, Farmers themselves can take some steps to reduce risk from insecticides. They can find insecticides that are more favorable to bees, which, yes, do exist. They can avoid spraying plants when they're flowering. They can spray at night, since bees forage during the day. Obviously, they need to make it to the hive on time to catch whatever the latest craze is on HBO, and yes, that stands for Hive Box Office. You should see the bee version of Succession. Kendall wants to take over the hive, so Sting's Logan dies immediately, and then Shiv and Roman are like, Kendall's dumb, but we love you, keep running the hive. Also, Logan is the queen bee in this show, but I think that goes without saying. What about on the policy side? Well, given that bees do have quite a bit of public attention, there have been efforts at the state and federal level already. You may have heard of one attempt about a month ago in California that left newscasters such as this one a little befuddled.
1: A California appeals court ruled bumblebees are eligible for protection as endangered fish under California law. A lower court had ruled the Endangered Species Act does not include insects, but the appeals court disagreed and ruled that since bees are invertebrates, They could be classified as fish, which are protected. And the court said the Endangered Species Act's definition of fish as only aquatic invertebrates is just, quote, a term of art.
0: And when you hear a newscaster get confused and basically have to hold back laughter, you know you're in a dicey situation. Now, a lot of people in the environmental world were excited about this ruling, but as you probably gathered if you listened to Wednesday's Tip of the Iceberg, clinging to linguistic disputes and old legislation like this may not be as effective as just passing legislation to, I don't know, include insects. I think that's probably why this newscaster reacted the way he did. That said, I'm open to being wrong, and that's why I'm going to do a little experiment right now. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for the game show you didn't know you needed, but are glad you ended up with anyway, Bees or Fish. And welcome everybody to Bees or Fish. Please give it up for your host. He's mean. He's green. He did a dumb thing to his hair last week, but you wouldn't know because you just hear his voice on this podcast. Please welcome
1: Ethan Brown!
0: Thank you, thank you! Welcome to the show that attempts to answer the question on everyone's mind, Bee or Fish? Our contestant today is Gina M. Why don't you tell us about yourself, Gina? I'm from New Jersey, I work in consulting, and I'm engaged to my wonderful fiancé- Excellent! Now, Gina, I'm going to give you some clues. And you need to answer the question, bee or fish? It's an invertebrate. It's black and yellow. They can be found all over the world, they like to travel in groups. They're not easy to maintain in captivity. It sounds like a bee, but can I phone a friend? You may not. Can I have another clue? People keep them as a hobby. Uh. They're featured in a famous animated movie. Oh, Bee Movie, it's a bee. No, I'm sorry. It's the Moorish Idol. Oh. The Moorish Idol is that black and yellow angler fish that William Defoe voiced in Finding Nemo. Well, thanks for playing, Gina, and just for being here, you're going home with a lifetime supply of rice syrup. From all of us here at Bees or Fish, have a great evening. Yeah. huh, I guess bees and fish are closer together than I realized. Maybe California's onto something. Certainly, there's a lot more on the policy front than just classifying bees as fish, though. Policymakers can pass actual laws protecting bees. Like I mentioned earlier, neonicotinoid pesticide bans tend to be all the rage, and that may help. But there could be other approaches, too, to incentivize more healthy use of pesticides. Policymakers could find ways to support beekeepers economically, or find ways to crack down on hive thefts. And addressing climate change is maybe the biggest task of all. Certainly, there have been a lot of bee conservation moves taken via executive actions, the EPA, and state and tribal organizations to conserve bees. But given how important bees are not just for the honey industry, but for almonds and a whole list of other crops, it's definitely worth considering targeted policy actions to address bee conservation head on. But as overwhelming as the loss of bees may seem, there is a lot of hope and the fact that bees are as popular as they are. I mean, if people are willing to classify them as fish or ship queen bees in the mail to save hives, then people are obviously getting behind this issue. And if that momentum continues, we could see a more robust honey industry, a more stable agricultural sector, and ensure that the only reason bees die is from idiotically stinging people. Unless, of course, you're Adam Flayman from the Bee Movie. Seriously, the whole movie sets up that if you sting someone, you die, just to have a character sting someone and not die. I mean, I know twist endings are fun, but really? Are you starting your own small business and want to put your best foot forward? Then Squareface might be for you. Visit our website to browse dozens of award-winning designer templates for how to rearrange your skin and leave your body looking its best. People of all skill levels can use Squareface's all-in-one platform to sculpt the perfect meat masterpiece of themselves. There's nothing to patch, upgrade, or install ever, unless you want to install wearable technology into your face to achieve your cyborg dreams. Then you can do that. Squareface, because online surgery definitely seems possible. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Paraland Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbsorg Promise. Welcome back to the Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Christina Grosinger, professor of entomology at Pennsylvania State University. Dr. Grosinger, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, Ethan. I'm happy to join you.
0: First off, tell us a bit about your background. How did you become interested in pollinators?
1: My brother was actually keeping honeybees, and he would tell me all of these really cool things about their behavior um, and their complex social behaviors, most of which seem very instinctive. Um, And I thought, you know, someone should really understand how genes regulate behavior in these complicated systems like honeybees. And I was like, well what am I doing? I can maybe switch for this for my postdoc. And so I uh, transitioned from my postdoc to looking at how genes regulate chemical communication in bees. Um, and then sort of from there, you know as there was more and more interest in trying to understand bee health and pollinator declines, um, my program expanded to include that as, as well.
0: Bees are one of the animals like polar bears or sea turtles, which have really seemed to capture interest from the public. Even if they don't have the details, people seem very aware that bees face significant threats. You hear save the bees all the time. So, why do you think bees have managed to intrigue people so much?
1: So, one is that bees are really important for our food supply. So, uh, about three quarters of our major agricultural crops benefit from bees and other pollinators. Um, and so this is, you know, foods like our fruits, our vegetables and our tree nuts. So all the things that your doctor says you should eat, um, you know, we can thank pollinators for that. So I think when people learn about bee behavior and the natural history of bees, like it's just a, a fascinating world, um, to, to enter into. And then the third thing is that you can find bees pretty much anywhere, right? And so if you're, um, if you're in a city, you, know, you still have bees, and if you plant flowers, you will attract more bees. And so it's a, it's a way to really connect with nature and, and the environment um, in a very you know, immediate way. So it's very gratifying, I think, compared to some of the other environmental challenges that we're facing that seem very hard for one person to be able to make a difference.
0: Over recent decades, we've seen more and more instances of colony collapse disorder all over the world. And there seems to be a weird amount of conflicting literature on what causes this phenomenon. Do you have any insights on the causes of colony collapse disorder? And why is this such a complicated question?
1: I think there's sort of three different things that we have to be thinking about when we think about Um, bee declines or pollinator declines. So colony collapse disorder is specific for honeybees. uh, And it was something that, you know, um, became apparent or people became really aware of in the winter of 2006. And so this is when beekeepers in the U.S. were reporting really massive die-offs of their bees um, at a scale that had not been seen before. So since then, people have started tracking the mortality of their bee colonies in the winter more uh, or more regularly than they they did before. And and it's clear that in the US, beekeepers lose, you know, 30 to 40% of their colonies every winter, Um, but it's not necessarily the same kind of symptoms that we saw with colony collapse disorder. So, um, So when we think about sort of honeybee winter mortality, there are lots of things that cause it. So one is um, honeybees have this mite called varroa mites and beekeepers, you ha- in if you're working with European bees, which is what we have in the Northern Hemisphere, so in North America and Europe, um, those bees are tend to be pretty susceptible to varroa mites. So you have to control them as a beekeeper um, or else you'll, you know, that's like the leading cause of winter losses. But also then there's, there's, um, you know, lack of Uh, food, you know, the bees have to survive the whole winter with the food that they've stored over the summer. And so if they are lacking that, then they'll starve. Um, And then there's also concern about pesticides that might weaken the bees and make them not able to survive the whole winter. Um, So that's for honeybees, to manage honeybees. But then when we think about um, wild pollinators, so in the U.S., for example, we have like 4,000 species of bees, right? And so most of them are wild. Uh, And so when we think about the things that are causing declines with wild bees, you know, they are not being affected by Varroa mites. So the issues that are affecting them are, again, these like lack of um, uh, floral resources that they depend on for their food, um, weather extremes that may make it difficult for them to get their food or to uh, rear their young or to make it through the winter. And then pesticides that, that can, again, make them more susceptible um, to, you know, other diseases. So it's slightly, slightly different things from colony collapse disorder, which was this very specific.
0: So would it be safe and accurate to say there may not just be one singular cause of either be population decline or colony collapse disorder?
1: Yes, that so that is, I think the thing um, that is, frustrating to a lot of people, right? So when, when colony collapse disorder was first you know, revealed or discovered, um, there was really the hope that there was like one thing you know that we that could possibly be driving, um, driving this phenomena. right And so if it was a virus or a specific parasite or a specific pesticide. Um, and so, so now we know that you know there, there are many ways, that you can kill bees, right? And so, and and all those things are found in our environment, um, you know, pretty much everywhere. So so when we think about supporting bees and creating habitats that can support bees and other pollinators and biodiversity in general, we have to think more holistically, you know, about sort of the whole whole ecosystem and having the food that they need um, and and protecting them from weather extremes and, and reducing pollution.
0: You started to mention this, but one of your recent studies found some pretty major links between bees and weather, which, of course, is changing due to climate change. So, could you share a bit about that research and what you found?
1: Yeah. So there were three major studies that we did recently that that sort of showed the effect of um, weather and landscape on on bee declines. And so, for one of them, we were um, able to partner with the Pennsylvania State Beekeepers, um, who have been doing a survey for winter losses for several years. And we were interested in in trying to um, use the data to better understand what was driving um, winter losses in in Pennsylvania. And so we asked them if they could add a question to the survey where we would know the the location of the apiaries for the beekeepers so that we could get information about the sort of, background land use patterns, and then also the weather patterns. And we um, analyzed you know, the, the correlations with many different variables from you know, the surrounding habitat, to the topography, to the weather um, and the climate. And what we found was the, the most important variables uh, were the weather in the previous summer. And so um, this was not what we were expecting. But it was pretty clear that it was it was the, uh, the if it was too hot or too cold in that area in the previous summer, or too rainy or not rainy enough in the previous summer, um, you had higher uh, win- winter losses of bees. And so we think that that was probably something related to um, you know the availability of the floral resources of those plants. So if you have the flowering plants there. That's great, but they have to have you know, the right conditions to produce a lot of flowers and, those, and produce a lot of nectar or pollen in those flowers. Um, so that was one study. Um, we did another study where we were looking at uh, wild bee abundance and diversity using data that came from Sam Droghi from the uh, U.S. Geological Survey. So he's been um, surveying uh, wild bee populations in the mid-Atlantic for about 20 years. And so it's an amazing data set. Um, And so my uh, student, Melanie Kammer, she took the data, um, sort of cleaned it up and streamlined it for analysis. And again, what she found was that weather was a major driver of wild bee abundance and diversity. Um, And again, it was things like if it was too rainy the previous summer or the previous spring, you had less abundant and diverse spring bees the next year. Um, if the summer was too hot, you had less abundant, um, and diverse summer bees.
0: That's really interesting that you say it's more about the weather from months before. And I, maybe this is thinking too far ahead, but if there is that lag time, are there possible interventions that could maybe be done to, uh, dampen some of those effects?
1: Yes, exactly. So this is, um, something that we're, we're, um, trying to develop is predictive models, you know, where we can say, okay, the weather, you know, was not great. And so the prediction is for this year, you're going to, you know, have less abundant, um, wild bees or, um, your colonies are going to be in more danger this winter than they, they would have been in previous winters, or you will not produce as much honey. Right. So if we can, um, Sort of capture that those effects in have more real time and then project going forward, then that would give people an opportunity to take some steps to, to make improvements, right? So if you're a beekeeper, maybe you feed your honeybee colonies more in the fall because you you know the previous summer was not the best.
0: You also worked on a paper last year which found the economic value of pollinator services was, 34 billion dollars in 2012. I know you're more on the science side than the economic side, but could you share a bit on where that number comes from and how it fits into your research?
1: Yes. So this was a study that was led by my collaborator, Vikas Khanna, who's at University of Pittsburgh and his um, student who graduated, um, Alex Jordan. So basically, um, you know, as I said, we have about 75% of our major agricultural crops benefit from pollinators in some way. So some of them are completely dependent on pollinators. If you don't have um, bees or other pollinators present, then you can't make any crop. Um, and other ones, you just get a, an increase in the yield, um, but you could get some, some um, you know, fruit or or seed production, even if there were no pollinators. So so Alex took that information for each crop, basically the dependency on pollinators. Um, She then took uh, the information on the economic value of those crops in these different states. um, And then the amount of that crop that was being grown in a county, in a specific county. And so, so basically from that, you can say that um, in a given county, how much of each crop was produced and what was the value of that and what percentage of that can be attributed to pollinators, to the pollination services of of bees and other insects. And so that allows us to calculate sort of on a national scale, like what was the benefit, um, what was the increase in yield and therefore the increase in economic value that came from pollination services. So when we think about that, Um, you know, there's even greater economic value that is coming from these pollination services beyond just like the production of the the crop itself.
0: And I know you've also done work with varroa mites. You've also done work with neonicotinoid pesticides. We can run down the list. But how would you say climate change stacks up among those other more commonly cited factors in bee population decline? And has climate change shifted your perspective on any of those issues?
1: Yeah, so I guess the way I think about it is that, you know, weather and climate change are kind of, you know, the, um, the, the large scale kind of like regional factors that will determine how well bees can, can do in a specific place and at a specific time, right? So it's, um, it's sort of the, I, I guess, the, uh, the thermostat <laughs> regulator, right, that that's, determines, you know, how well they can do. But those climate and weather effects are very difficult to study because you need to be able to have data that's coming from across years, from across a lot of different um, microclimates and and regions in order to get through the the variation that we need to be able to see really, um, how these factors are are driving the population um, declines or, or distribution changes.
0: We talked about interventions during maybe that lag period, but I'm sure we could also be thinking more broadly about climate adaptation in general, Um, because obviously we don't know exactly what each year will be, but we know it's not going to be the same as it used to be. As a scientist, what would be your advice to policymakers? Are there any logical next steps you can see for protecting bees?
1: there is a national strategy on on pollinators, which was developed um, a couple of years ago. And there's a real focus there on on improving habitat quality for for pollinators by adding more flowering plants into um, existing schemes. And so I I think that is, is one of the easiest things to do is just to sort of encourage People from all different kinds of communities to add more um, plants that can support pollinators that you know grow season long. They grow under different conditions from urban areas. I think also you know we we just need to um, to understand these patterns at you know an, a national scale, and so being able to support initiatives where we can get some of these data uh, at at the scale that we need to understand weather and climate effects, and so um, there is interest in a national bee monitoring program and the USDA funded a study that is looking to how to develop that program. And and then again, thinking about how to to manage our our crops in ways that have less impact on the environment. You know, I think all of these things can, can help us really manage our landscapes in ways that we can produce the food that we need with the help of the pollinators that we depend on, uh, in a way that's really economically feasible.
0: My last question for you, even though we say the public is aware of bees, we are obviously not anywhere near as knowledgeable as you are. So, what's something that might surprise us about bees?
1: I guess I would highlight two things that I think people would find surprising about about bees, but there are many things. As I, as I was saying before, you know, they have very complicated Lifestyles and behaviors, and I think people are not, you know, don't fully appreciate how complicated their lives are. And so we have about four thousand different bee species uh, in the in the United States and North America, and um, and there are about twenty thousand species worldwide. And so they all have different things that they do. You know, we have honey bees where you have a colony of fifty thousand bees, a single queen bee that lays all the eggs, and then all her workers are Um, Taking care of of those eggs and they divide themselves up among different tasks in the colony. One thing, if you're not aware of it, is that they do have a symbolic dance language where they communicate to each other where the food resources in the environment are. And so they do this waggle dance, um, and the the way that the dance is done tells the bees that are following the dancer um, basically. When they fly out of the hive, what direction should they go in to find the food? How far do they need to fly? And then how good is that food source for the colony? And so all of that information is being conveyed through this symbolic dance, which is pretty amazing.
0: Well, that's something I would love to expand on, but I guess we have to leave it there. Uh, Dr. Grossinger, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much, Ethan.
0: This wraps up episode 91 of The Sweaty Penguin. Take two minutes, help out the show, and get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict, or join our Patreon at patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. You get merch, bonus content, and more. Clips today came from Spill, Rock the Boat 5000, PBS NewsHour, KTVU Fox 2 San Francisco, and ABC 10 News. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons Lawrence Harris and Brownie Central. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the host and guests. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions or views of Peril and Promise or the WNET Group. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week.